0: If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, We're going to continue our study of the Ten Ten Commandments. If you don't have a Bible, you would like one so you can follow along. Lift your hand, and we'll make sure that you get one. Anybody that would like a Bible, we have a number back there. Uh, Be sure to pick them up if you don't have one. In fact, John's gone back to get them for you right now because his wife has her hand up. So... (laughs) Anyway, I think we need a couple of them. But anyway, Exodus chapter 20, we started the Ten Commandments, and then last week we took a break because we were talking about parenting and being moms and how you're to relate to your kids, and hopefully that was beneficial and helpful to some of you who are moms or grandmothers or parents, fathers, grandfathers, Uh, I know it relates to me. Uh, But as we come to the Ten Commandments, they're broken up into two parts. The first four have to do with our relationship with God, and the second six have to do with our relationship with man. And as you know, the great commandment, it says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. You love God. You love your neighbor as yourself. That's where we get into our relationship with humanity. And so these first four talk about a lot about how to love God. How do we love God? I was thinking about that as, as I was going through this this week. How how do we love someone that we cannot relate to with our basic five senses? We can't touch him, we can't see him, or hear him audibly, or, uh, you know, I'm I'm not going to say smell, but uh, maybe he'd work alone, I don't know. But how do we love someone that you can't touch? How do you love someone that you can't see? That he doesn't relate to our physical senses. A lot of people say, "Well, if I can't see it, touch it, feel it, whatever, then it isn't real." And yet, there's a lot of things that we can't feel, touch, see that we believe are real. There's no question about that. But we know how to love. We know how to love people. We know how to love our family. We know how to love our kids. We know how to love our. Uh, our spouses, hopefully. Uh, we we know the idea of holding hands and arm in arm and putting your arm around them. And, and we know the idea of giving to them and providing needs and, and all of those things that are there that we we sense. It's, it's like a young couple. If they're just engaged, it's kind of fun to watch them because... Uh, they're engaged and they, and, and they touch and they hold hands and, and they walk down the street and they're holding hands and they're smiling and looking at each other. And they just love to be together. Have you ever noticed that with couples that are just going to get engaged or something? Yeah, they, they have that, that feeling if they want to be together. It's like, a, well, I'll give you a couple. Maybe they're just married And he's on the church softball team, we'll use that illustration, we'll make that a deal. And he's out there and he's playing and she's at the game and she's sitting in the stands and she's cheering him on and he is so good, he is so amazing. He hits a ball and it dribbles between first and second, barely makes it into the outfield and she's up and she's cheering, you'd think he made a... A home run. You'd think I was going to say Barry Bonds, but who's really big today? Who's a good hitter for either the Giants or the A's? There's a couple of good ones. The A's are really powering them out. Anybody know who they are? Yeah, Crawford. Who? Crawford. Crawford. Yeah. And uh, so there are these guys that are hitting. They're doing a good job. And and uh, this gal she's up and go, yeah, babe, yes. And he gets. They were riding home, and she's telling him what a good job she did. Three years later, do you know what it's like three years later? She's sitting talking to her girlfriends. They're back behind. She doesn't have any idea the game's going on. All of a sudden, somebody said, hey, your husband just got a hit. She said he did. She turned around, way to go, babe, turns back and begins to talk again. Uh, it kind of changes that romance. We, we wish that would stay a little longer sometimes, but we know how to share love with one another. But the question remains. The greatest commandment in the Bible, love the Lord your God with all your heart. How do we love God? Well, we know that it says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. You'll do the things that I ask you to do. And certainly that is true. But I I believe as we come into the Second commandment this morning, we were looking at the first commandment a couple of weeks ago. As we come into the second commandment, we're going to see one way that we can love God, that we can display our love for God. And I think that is important. It talks about the priority of God in our lives. Where does he fit in, in how we live? And to look at this, I want to look at the first commandment first. If you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 20. In verse 3, it says, You shall have no other gods Before me. What's that saying? You know, you think about it. We talked about it. What does it mean you shall have no other gods before me? That means that there shouldn't be anything else in your life that's more important than God. Before you became a Christian, you probably had a lot of other things that were your priorities. It may have been your job, may have been your family, may have been your possessions, the car you drive, whatever it is. But when God became our Lord, when we committed our lives to him through Jesus Christ, what God says is, I want to be the priority. I want to be number one. I want you to see me first. Not keep looking around at what other things might be more important or you may be desiring more than me young couple walking down the street. They just got married. And you know, this guy's in his late 20s. I didn't get married until I was almost 28. And uh, he has this habit of, of uh, looking at other girls, you know, going along. And, and he'll be walking, holding his, his new wife, his bride's hand, and he'll kind of look around. Oh, and he won't say anything, but she sees him glance around. She doesn't want to say anything because she doesn't want to cause a problem. She doesn't want to have a conflict they go to a party. He goes and he talks with his friends, leaves her sitting over here. Or he goes and talks. He may be talking to men or women, either one. And when they're ready to go home, he comes, picks up his wife, his bride, and they go home. And uh, they're walking down the street one day, and he looks over, and he sees this girl drive by, go by. And she's walking by, and he looks at her, and his bride finally decides she's going to say something. She says, sweetie, I, I know that you... You have an eye of an artist. You you see that which is beautiful. You look at those things that are most beautiful, but says, I just want you to know right now I'm your art piece. And you know when you see that beautiful girl going by, I don't want you looking there. I want you to look at straight ahead or I want you looking at me. I don't want you looking anywhere else. And when we go to the party, I want you to spend time with me because I'm yours and you're mine and we need to be together, and you need to know that. You need to know that I deserve 100% of your attention. 100% of your focus. And you know, I, that's what God says. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods alongside of me. You won't have anything else that is in that position of number one. I want you to keep your eyes on me. you realize that back in Hebrews it says, focus on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so that's the whole idea. Hebrews chapter 12 says that we are to do that. God is to be the focus of our attention. He is to be number one. So we look at that and realize that that's what that first commandment says. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. It goes on in verses 4 through 6. Let me read it to you. This is the second of the great com- of the commandments, the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under heaven. Now, I want you to get that and listen to it very carefully. You shall not make for yourself an idol of any likeness of what is in heaven. That's a, that's a real amazing statement. We're going to come back to that in a couple of moments. Or anything on the earth or beneath or in the water or under the earth, you shall not worship them. In other words, you're not going to declare their value. They're not going to be number one. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so we begin to look at that, and, and uh, at first you would say, what? Well, that's just kind of like the first one. You know, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make, you, you're not to make any idols. You're not to worship them. Isn't that the same thing? But as we look at it, I think we're going to see that there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, If it were the same thing, it would simply mean that God is repeating himself. (laughs) And God doesn't always repeat himself. He doesn't say the same thing over and over again. He gives us two separate ideas here. And so we need to take this apart and understand it. And so to to look at it, I want to just kind of tear a couple of these verses apart and see what they say. Beginning in verse 4, it says, You shall not make... For yourself, you shall not. It's a negative command. It's emphatic. You're not to do this. It's not to become part of your lifestyle. It's definitely not what we're supposed to do. It says, "You shall not make for yourself for your own benefit." You shall not make an idol or any likeness. An idol is a, is a form of a carved image. It may be in stone. It may be in wood. In one place in the Bible, it talks about taking a log and cutting it in half. And one side you make an idol and the other you make firewood. And then you worship the idol and you burn the firewood. You see, one's not really any better than the other. And we're not to be making those idols. We're not to worship them or serve them. As I was reading through the Psalms, I came to Psalms 115. 115. And it talks about what an idol is. I think we need to see it from the perspective of how the Israelites would see it. But in verses 3 to 8, it says, uh, of of Psalms 115, it says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But their idols, their idols are silver and gold. The work of a man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. Oh, and they have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them, it says, will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. And basically, when you look at an idol, it has no more power than the person who created it. That's all it is. If if you have an idol that is maybe not this, but it may be some other thing that you put your faith and your trust in, you worship, it has no more power than you give it. That's it. Most of the technological things that we have today have only the power that man has given to them. They may be a whole lot smarter than me, but someone programmed them and created them to be what they are and and, and that's the power that they have. So this is, is where command number one differs from number two. Not only were they not to create and worship false gods, but they weren't to create images in the heavens either they were not to create images that represented heavenly beings and God himself. And that's where it begins to change. That's that's where we need to look at it and understand a little bit what it is. We're not to create images that portray Yahweh. We'll use the Hebrew words that we just learned, Yahweh or Adonai or Elohim. We're not to make... Images that would relate to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the purpose of worship. It's what we would call worship helpers, things that help us to worship God. But that's not what God desires for us to do. Because then we begin to, as we're going to see, limit who God is by what we create. You see, when we do that, we... uh, We distort the image of God. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32, Moses was up on the mountain. Uh, The children of Israel came to Aaron. And and I'm amazed at Aaron because they came and said, Aaron, well, let me read it for you. Uh, Chapter 32 of Exodus, and we'll begin with verses 1 through 6. It says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God, lowercase, so they're not talking about Yahweh, Elohim, any of those gods. Make us a God who will go before us. In other words, we want you to create an idol that will lead us, but an idol can only go as far as someone else moves it. Well, as for Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, they didn't even give God the credit for that. It was Moses, this man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, well, tear off all of the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off all the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he he took this from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf and they said and they said this is your God O Israel again lowercase they were looking at as the God who had brought them out you brought he who brought you up out of the land of Egypt now when Aaron saw this he built an, an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation, and he said, and this is interesting to me, tomorrow shall be a feast to the, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. You see, Aaron understood who brought them out. The people didn't. They were making a God and saying he brought them out, and Aaron said, we're going to have a feast to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, the one who said, I am that I am. And so the next day they rose early and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to drink or to eat and to drink and they rose to play. I want you to notice something. Moses was gone. He wasn't there. Moses seemed to be the one that kept this group of individuals that had come out of Egypt on track. He was the one that would go between between them and God. He was the intercessor in a way between them and God. And so as long as Moses was there, they seemed to be on track. But when Moses left, and it's too bad that sometimes we put men and women in that position of being an intercessor, the ones that hold us on track. But when Moses left, they began to say, oh, we need a new God. We need another God. Well, Aaron apparently still understood who God really was. He understood who brought them out. He was there when Moses went before Pharaoh, he was there to help speak. He was the one who helped with the the miracles that took place there. And yet he fashioned this calf. Now that, that the calf, the bull, was an Egyptian god and it represented it, it it uh represented a, a god of, of power and potency and and authority, and so maybe that was how Aaron saw God. But that's what he created. He created an idol even though God says that's not what we're supposed to do. Listen to verse 4b. It says, you shall, oh, verse 32. And he took us from this land and fashioned it into a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And it was in verse 5 that I begin to see what Aaron thought. He says, and when Aaron saw this, what they were doing, what they were proclaiming to be, he built an altar before it, and, Mos- and Aaron made a proclamation. He said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. God, uh, maybe in Aaron's mind, I don't know, he saw the bull as one who would represent the power of God and the authority of God and how he'd brought them out of Egypt. But you know what? God wasn't flattered. God wasn't honored by that at all. In fact, if you read on, you're going to find that God wanted to destroy the nation of Israel. You, I, I look at it, and it says not to make an image of anything in heaven, and I really believe that in his mind, Aaron may have been desiring to honor God through the image he created And yet when the people saw what Aaron had created, their worship changed. It's what we might call a worship helper. If we can see something like a molten calf or a a calf made out of gold, a symbol of power and authority, maybe it'll help us to focus better on God. But when we have those... Image helpers, what they do is they distort who God is. It, it gives us an inferior view of who God is. It—it it was an illustration. It took away from the idea of probably His holiness, His love, His mercy. Those wouldn't be seen in the image of the bull. And so, when we begin to create images of who someone is, it changes how we see them. How, how do you get an image of someone from the past? What, what is it that, that causes you to think about what Jesus might be like? Or what he might have looked like? Or what Adam and Eve might have looked like? You know, I, I, my images, my ideas come from pictures. Somebody write, paints a picture. They paint a painting or whatever. And I look at it and say, wow, that's Adam and Eve. You know, we'll take them. We won't take something that would be like Jesus or God right now. But, but they, they, they do a picture and you go, wow, that's what they look like. How many of you right now have an image in your mind of what Adam and Eve look like? Oh, come on. I have a picture of what they look like. I remember them running through the garden hand in hand trying to hide. He had brown hair, fair skin. She had blonde hair. that's the image because you see I come from a a European background and it's amazing how the artist would create things in their image of what they look like and so when I look at Adam and Eve that's, that's kind of how I see it how many of you think in your image of the garden was it uh, cloudy or sunny how many of you think it was sunny alright how many of you think it was cloudy Do you know what the Bible tells us in in Genesis chapter 1? It says that the, or Genesis 2, I guess, it says that the ground or the earth was watered by a mist that came up and there was basically a canopy over the earth at that time. They didn't see the sun. Wow. Why do you think it was sunny? Because in the picture I saw, it was sunny. You see, the pictures, the images, the statues begin to shape what we see, what we believe is true, and, and how things should be. Uh, you know, I, I think of, of how I think of Jesus and uh, what he was like, and it's, and it's based on pictures that I've seen. And yet we don't know what he looked like. When I was a boy, we had a lot of pictures that were of Jesus, and he had long brown flowing hair, and it kind of turned up at the end. And he would be in a garden, or he would be with sheep. He would be knocking on a door. He would be um, with little children. He always looked gentle. He always looked kind. He had such a, a wonderful, kind look on his face. And that was kind of my Jesus. That's what Jesus was like when I was a boy. That's how I viewed him. Now, when we got into the probably 70s or 80s, the Jesus pictures began to change, and there were those individuals that began to paint pictures of Jesus where he had more of a stubble on his face than a well-trimmed beard. His face, her hair was a little shorter and kind of scraggly in comparison to the beautiful hair that had just come out of the beauty shop. And I remember people saying, that's more like my Jesus. Well, you see, we try and... We paint a picture, and in our minds, that's who he becomes. And it kind of gives us the idea of what his temperament might be like. I, I would say, in those early pictures of Jesus with the children and knocking on the door, and in the beautiful white robe or Muslim robe that he would be wearing, that, wow, here's a beautiful Jesus. And he's soft and he's gentle but it's not the picture of the Jesus that drove the money changers out of the temple. You see, that's the problem when we begin to create idols and we begin to create images and we begin to create pictures that are helpers for our worship. Joseph and Mary. How do you see them? Anybody know what Joseph and Mary look like? Probably swarthy skin, darker hair. They lived in the Middle East. They were out in the sun all the time. And yet I see them oftentimes with very fair skin. Adam and Eve could have been any color. They could have looked in any way. All we know is that it did say that the women were, uh, that the children were beautiful. And so there was a certain beauty to them. Well, I want to bring it home. I I want to talk about how this affects us. Uh, today, I, I don't think any of you probably have a golden calf somewhere around your house. I, I don't think you've made little images of God and hung them in your in your houses or wherever. Um, but we do have worship helpers. And um, I, I want to be, I, I don't want to necessarily step on toes, but I want to uh, be honest with, with what we see. I want us to reflect on on how the things that we have that have to do with our worship may affect us. And there are some beautiful pieces that we use for jewelry. And sometimes I wonder exactly how we relate to them or what they are. And the first one would be a crucifix. And uh, it's a beautiful piece of of religious symbolism. There is wonderful symbolism there of, of the beauty of Jesus Christ going to the cross and giving his life for us. But sometimes, because of that, we can get a wrong idea of where Jesus is. Uh, J.I. Packer, I.J. Packer, I mean, wrote a book, Knowing God, probably in the 70s. And uh, he makes this statement. He says, it fails when we, when we look at him and it depicts his pain and his suffering. It fails to remind us of the victory and the joy of his resurrection and his ascension. It's an incomplete picture of the person of Christ. It shows a dying Christ, not a living Christ, bursting forth from the tomb and the resurrection power. And, and you'd probably say to me, well, Andy, uh, an image can't portray everything about Jesus, and you're right, it can't. And that's where the problem comes, is we look at something and we get focused in on it, and, and it becomes what we focus on rather than necessarily what really happened. Let me, let me take you another one cross I grew up with a cross and uh, I love the cross we have a cross out in front of the building we have one here and uh, it's a wonderful symbol of the fact that Jesus isn't on the cross anymore but you want to know something it doesn't say he's been resurrected what we would really need then is an empty tomb that would show his resurrection and the victory that Jesus had and so we have to be careful that these things do not begin to set our tone for what we believe and what we don't believe and what's real and what isn't real. Um, religious art. you know, I, I already talked about that and how I saw Jesus as a young man as a, as a well-groomed Christ, not aggressive but kind of passive. We don't see his muscles. We don't see the calluses from working with the wood and with the stone and being a builder. And then he became that tougher Jesus. Where do we get a picture of what Jesus is like? Probably one of the best is Isaiah 53. It's in the word of God, and that's where you have to go back. But in Isaiah 53, verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form of majesty that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. And of course, that's talking about when Jesus went to the cross But uh, as I think of Jesus, he probably was not the way we so often portray him as someone who was wonderful and beautiful and the soft tones that I used to see in Jesus Christ. In verses 4 and 5 of our passage, second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on children to the fourth and fifth generations, or third and fourth generations of those who hate me. What about uh, what about art? I want to... I want to think about it. When, when we think about worship helpers, helpers, can we ever create an emblem that, that fully represents God? No, we can't. And that's important for us to realize. But before you begin to react and go home and tear all your art off the wall and, and, and throw away everything you have, I, I don't want you to do that. Uh, and, and I don't want you to say, wow, Andy is, is really stepped beyond... But what does it say about religious images in the house of worship? Well, even the Israelites put the cherubim into the Holy of Holies, and God had them do that. So we know that uh, there were some things that were allowed. But I think the issue is with the religious art, because we get into this and we have to deal with this second commandment is that it may be something that will remind us of who we are, but it cannot become a basis for worship. We can't create our God because of what we see on or off the cross or on the tomb or wherever it is. He's so much greater than anything we could create like that. And We need to understand that. Well, how do I, how do I love God. The role of the church is, is, I believe, give you more than just a shadow picture of who God is. But when we think about loving God, true worship of God comes uh, as we don't look at an image or or a picture or anything else. It it comes from getting in here and finding out what the Bible says about God. I, I would encourage you to... Read and study it. Listen to things that are taught about who God is. Get some books. Get a theology book on the attributes of God. What does it say? How do we go back into the Scriptures and study those? That's how you begin to get a picture of who you worship and who you don't worship. That's how we properly fulfill that that second commandment of not making an idol. You know, back in John chapter four, verse twenty-four, it gave us instruction for worship, and it says, "True worship." must be in spirit and in truth spiritual worship it involves I believe in some ways it, it, it's certainly spiritual but it's 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 that internal external emotion part of it that's there that that we have that love for God there should be a, an emotional thing there should be a spiritual tie to God it says we also worship him in truth we worship him in spirit and in truth where do we get the truth we go back to the Word of God. That's where we always have to go. If we try to worship God in any other way, we miss what worship's all about. We can't have worship helpers that that tend to distort the truth of who he is. To truly worship, we have to have a true picture of God. We can't have a half-truth. We can't have something that has been created because of pictures or symbols that we've seen rather than the word of god and and I'll be honest with you I don't I don't think the greatest problem in the worship of the evangelical church today or most churches has to do with religious symbols but I believe the real problem that we have in worship is an incomplete view and relationship with god we do a lot of preaching oftentimes on how to have a good family or how to relate to people or how to get along and how to have unity and all the different things. But what we really need to do sometimes. And it's what we did when we did the, the names of God. We just need to go back and say who is he time and time again. Who is Jesus? Who is God? Who is the father? How does it relate? Some people seem as a tight-fisted old judge. Boy I don't like the God of the Old Testament. Have you, Any any of you heard that? Any of you thought that? Back in, in Psalms 103 verse 8. I, I remember hearing people. I've heard People talk about almost having two different gods, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. They didn't like the Old Testament because he was demanding and he would punish the nation of Israel and it bothered them. But in Psalms 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in loving kindness. Oh, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He's dealt, not dealt with us according to our sins, but rewarded us according to our nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And it talks about a compassionate, loving God. and some people, and I, I remember over the years hearing people talk about how mean and angry and hard God could be. Others see God as a just a nice old guy in the sky. You know, he's he's not going to judge us for anything. We're not going to get in trouble with him. He's he's a loving God. All I have to do is say, forgive me for my sins, and it'll be okay, and I'll go ahead and do whatever I like from that day forth. And that's not true either. Bill Hybels talks about going on a plane, and he met a young woman on that plane, and she was uh, talking to him, and he asked her about her relationship with God and who was God to her, and... Oh, she was a Christian. She believed in God. She would received him. But then she began to talk about her life. She was living with her boyfriend out of wedlock. They were involved in drug use. They were involved in a number of other things that were immoral and weren't right. And he said, how can you do that as a Christian? And she said, oh, God's forgiving. God's loving. You know, God knows that boys will be boys and girls will be girls and she had an uh, an improper view of who god is because there is that day that there will be a reckoning and there is that issue have we really made god our lord and not just one who forgave us and accepts our sin because he doesn't doesn't mean that he's harsh he's still compassionate he's loving and so we need to see a total picture of god I remember in in the previous church I was in, we had just finished building the building. Well, we didn't build the building, but we had remodeled. It was a a metal storage building before, and uh, one of the men came up and said, we've got to put a huge cross on top of the building. I said, why? Well, so they know we're a church, and they know that God's here. And I said, no, we don't need that big cross to do that. Well, then let's put a cross in front of the building so that they can see who we are and they'll understand what we worship. He wanted to put it in the flower garden out there. And I said, no, we don't need to do that. And finally, we compromised and we put our name on the sign. But I'll tell you what, when people look at a church, it isn't the cross on the front of the building or the cross in the front of the auditorium that makes us the people that God wants us to be. People will know whether we are Christians or not by how we treat one another and how we treat others. And that's when Jesus Christ is seen, and that's when God is seen. Jesus made a statement. He says, they will know you're my disciples because you have love one for another. Am I telling you to go home and get rid of all of your artwork? Hell, I've got some beautiful artwork at home, and I love it. But it doesn't draw me to worship. My worship comes not from coming in and, and looking at the cross, although I do that once in a while and I pray. But my worship comes from who I know who God is and my relationship with him and what he's done for me. He said, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. He said, number two, you shall make no images, heaven above, on the earth, or in the water under the earth, that you worship instead of focusing and worshiping on who I am. So we go through the Ten Commandments there. That's, I look at the second commandment, and it may not be one that, that you all reflect on so much as, wow, that's that's a issue I have a problem with. Probably isn't. But still, we need to be aware that we're not to put things in front of God or make them the basis for our worship or worship helpers instead of directly worshiping and honoring the God that we have and studying his word and spending time in prayer. Let's pray, shall we? Father, you know, as I look at this second commandment, I think, does it relate to us today? Certainly it does. Uh, certainly it related to the people during the time of, of Moses because they were just coming out of Egypt. And they had all of these images, all of these idols, all of these things that were created. Later on, they had the Baals and they had the Asherah poles and, and all of those things. They were part of the things they struggled with. We're even told that that brass snake that Moses made, they were to look at. And when they looked at it, they would be healed. had become an article of worship. And it was in the temple years and years and years later, still there. So it's easy to begin to worship things, Father. It's easy to create images that become important. But in our society and culture, in the church today, maybe in the evangelical church at least, we do not see so much of that. Other churches possibly, but not in the evangelical church so much. But Father, we know that we can get off track we can end up focusing on things that aren't right and and, uh, they become an issue of worship for us. And so help us to be well-rounded in our understanding of who you are, to, to understand your holiness as well as your love, to understand your justice as well as your compassion, to understand your power, your omnipotence, as well as Jesus becoming a man that lived among us and gave his life for us. Father, help us to have an understanding of you. And out of that, I pray our worship would grow. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the reminder of where we're supposed to be in these things. I pray for each individual here today. I, I pray for our upcoming video next week. And I, I pray that we would be able to just say to our neighborhood and our community, wow, we're glad that you're here. We want to be part of you. And we want to do something special for you. And that they would come and enjoy. And If they don't have a church, they would join us. Father, we uh, we pray that you'd be honored and glorified through our lives as individuals. And as a body of believers, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.